If you enjoy this episode on infamous gangster and Chicago outfit boss Al Capone, be sure to check out the Kingpins podcast. Each week, we profile infamous crime bosses and examine how money and power corrupted them. From street gangs to mafiosos, you'll learn what it takes for a kingpin or queenpin to rise to the top of the underworld and why they eventually fall. Follow Kingpins free on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Valentine's Day, 1929. James Clark was growing impatient. The boss had never been this late before. The five men were dressed in their Sunday best, loitering in a deserted garage. Near them, mechanic John May was cleaning his tools. Four others besides him had arrived. The bookkeeper, Adam Heyer, Reinhard Schwimmer, and both the Gusenberg brothers. The gangsters looked up expectantly as the side door creaked open. The man in the doorway was not their boss, it was Albert Weinshank. He asked them where Moran was. Clark sighed. It was going to be a long day. Moments later, the doors burst open. Two policemen filled the door, shotguns in their hands. They shouted at the men, telling them to get up against the wall. Confused, Clark and his associates obliged. Clark looked over his shoulder, waiting for the two cops to search them. Instead, he saw the cops were joined by two plainclothes men carrying Tommy guns. They looked strangely familiar. Without hesitation, the men opened fire. Clark was still conscious when he hit the ground. Then, a moment later, his world was silenced with a single shotgun blast. The shooters left as quickly as they came, leaving behind nothing but the smell of gunpowder and seven dead men. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. This is Kingpins, a ParCast original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. Today, we're concluding the story of Alphonse Gabriel Capone, the legendary Chicago mobster. Last week, we followed him from his childhood in one of Brooklyn's crowded immigrant communities to the moment when he inherited control of the Chicago outfit when he was only in his mid-twenties. 
At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. After surviving both a shooting and brief prison sentence in 1925, Johnny Torrio had had enough of the mob life. Though his bribes made sure his prison stay was comfortable, he was haunted by the memory of Northside gang member Bugs Moran pointing a pistol at his head as he lay bleeding on the pavement. Once he emerged from prison, he announced his plans to retire. His exact words reportedly were, It's all yours, Al. Me? I'm quitting. It's Europe for me. In late 1925, Torrio left America for his home in Italy, leaving complete control of the Chicago outfit to Al Capone, his 26-year-old protege. Capone had learned much about strategy from Torrio, but was undeniably more ruthless. He knew the Northside gang still blamed him for the murder of Dean O'Banion, and he had his own score to settle for their attempt on his life that January. Both he and Northside leader Jaime Weiss were itching for revenge. Capone's ascension kicked off one of the most violent periods in Chicago history. Gangland slang splashed across front pages from 1926 to 1929, all of them wildly speculating about which gang was killing which now. The gang war began with a dramatic assault on Al Capone's headquarters in Cicero's Hawthorne Hotel, ordered by Weiss. Al was lured to the front windows and a caravan of cars opened fire on the building. They reportedly emptied a thousand rounds into the face of the hotel before speeding away. Incredibly, Al Capone was unscathed in this attack. While still maintaining a tenuous peace with the Unione Siciliana, the Italian-American fraternity to whom many of Capone's enforcers belonged, Capone launched a decisive counterattack on the Northside gang. On October 11, 1926, Jaime Weiss was walking back from a hearing along State Street with his lawyer and bodyguard. A pair of gunmen emerged from the shadows and fired their weapons at the group. Jaime Weiss was dead on the spot. With Weiss dead, Bugs Moran became the sole head of the Northside gang. He was a far more cautious man than Weiss, and thus significantly harder for Capone to catch off guard. Capone, meanwhile, was taking even more drastic steps to ensure his own safety. His personal car was outfitted with steel plating and bulletproof glass, safeguarding him against the drive-by shootings which had almost killed him while working for Torrio. After the first attack, the Hawthorne Hotel became a regular fortress. Every entrance was guarded. Capone retained a private chef to protect himself from poisoning, and even the back of his chair was bulletproof. Wherever he went, he was flanked by eight bodyguards, who his New Yorker profile referred to as a double-walled fortress of meat. 
Capone took every care to be safe from the sort of attack that killed his brother Frank two years earlier. This came with an increased obsession with controlling his public image. Starting in 1927, Capone would hold regular press conferences to reassure the citizens of Chicago that he had nothing to do with the ongoing gang violence. Combined with his outwardly genial manner and penchant for giving random citizens massive handouts, it worked astonishingly well. In the criminal world, his grip was not quite as tenable. Other American mob bosses, from New York to Atlantic City, had spent years profiting in the shadows, and they saw Capone's publicity-obsessed machine as a danger to the cloak of secrecy safeguarding their business interests. In the spring of 1927, Capone lost his first major ally. At the time, Frankie Yale, one of Capone's mentors and a frequent gun for hire, was Capone's main supplier of whiskey. Yale would import whiskey into New York Harbor, then ship it west to Chicago. Capone's bookkeepers noticed a strange detail in recent shipments. An alarming number of their whiskey trucks had been hijacked coming out of Brooklyn. Capone suspected he was being double-crossed, so he dispatched a trusted friend, James Diamato, to spy on the latest shipment that left New York. Diamato's body turned up in July of 1927, with several bullet holes in his skull. Sources vary on whether he was able to call Capone ahead of time and inform him of Yale's treachery. Either way, the secret was out. Capone, presumably in an attempt to repair the relationship with his friend and former employer, invited Frankie Yale to Chicago to watch boxing, specifically the rematch between heavyweight champion Gene Tunney and former champion Jack Dempsey. Yale accepted Capone's invitation, joining him on September 22, 1927 to watch the fight. It is not known whether Capone accused Yale of hijacking his whiskey or whether he attempted to make amends, but both parties came away from the fight with their professional and personal relationships fractured. Ten months later, on July 1st of 1928, the phone rang at Frankie Yale's Sunrise Club in New York. An assistant summoned Yale over. The call was for him and it was personal. The man on the other end of the line said he was a doctor. Frankie's wife, Lucy, had fallen ill. He needed to get home right away. Yale immediately got into his car and sped off toward his home. As he drove down the streets of New York, a black sedan pulled up behind him and opened fire. Frankie Yale's car was bulletproof, but the windows were not. The back window shattered with the first shot alerting Yale to the impending danger. He sped up, trying to evade his pursuers. The pursuing vehicle pulled up alongside Yale's car and released a second volley through the side windows. Frankie Yale was struck in the head by shotgun and submachine gunfire from the pursuer. His car swerved out of control and crashed into a nearby building. At 35 years old, Frankie Yale was dead. The message was clear. Don't double-cross the Chicago outfit. 
Yale's associates in the New York mob were furious at the audacity of this shooting, but had no hard evidence to pin it on Capone, only rumor. As always, Al Capone gave no indication that he had been involved in Yale's murder. As far as the public could tell, Al's biggest concern was buying his wife a second house. He had announced in early 1928 the desire to move to Miami and spend the winter months in sunny Florida. The press spread this story in every gossip column, creating a panic among the richer citizens in Miami. None of them wanted to become a gangster's neighbor. Capone traveled to Miami himself to convince the mayor that he was a simple businessman who wanted to buy a vacation home for his family. Somehow, the mayor was convinced by Capone's charming demeanor and allowed him to buy a house in Palm Island under his wife May's name. This strategy was one of Capone's principal safeguards against prosecution. He never put his name on any official documents. Even his home in Chicago was under his mother's name. In Miami, they could spend the winter of 1928 in peace and warmth, away from the stressful business dealings of Chicago. May Capone appreciated this, as she had the space to deal with their sickly son, and would not have to deal with Al's overbearing mother, who she apparently did not get along with. But Capone had another reason for taking an extended vacation from his home city, one which would not become apparent until February of 1929. Next, Chicago bears witness to one of the most infamous crimes of all time. Now back to the story. February 1929. George Bugs Moran was barely hanging on by a thread in the Chicago Gang War. A more cautious man than his predecessor, Jaime Weiss, he had outlived both previous heads of the Northside Gang by a wide margin. By this point, his grudge against Capone was feeling personal. On top of the many murders Moran blamed Capone for, Moran was also publicly disgusted by Al Capone's willingness to engage in sex work, something that, as a Catholic, he vehemently opposed. And yet, despite having what he believed was the moral high ground, Moran knew he was losing this fight. After the death of Weiss in 1926, Moran was well aware Capone had painted a target on his back. Moran's headquarters were under constant surveillance from Capone's men, and he was losing territory fast. On February 14, 1929, seven members of the Northside gang gathered at 2212 North Clark Street, including Albert Kachalek, Moran's second-in-command, who also went by the alias James Clark. Arranged in secret, this was a strategy meeting to plan the Northside gang's next moves against Capone. Rumors would later insist they were gathering to load a bootleg shipment of whiskey, but this is unlikely given the men's fancy dress and high ranks within the outfit. At around 10.30 in the morning, four men, two in police uniforms, burst into the garage and ordered the Northsiders up against the wall. Thinking this was a raid, the gangsters put their hands up and stood patiently, waiting to be frisked. 
But then, the men opened fire with Tommy guns and shotguns, riddling all seven men with bullets. When the real police showed up, the gunmen were long gone. Of the shooting victims, only one was still alive, an enforcer named Frank Gusenberg. He had taken 14 bullets. When asked who shot him, Frank Gusenberg replied, No one. Nobody shot me. He was then rushed to the hospital, where he died three hours later. While none of the killers have ever been identified, it is widely believed that this shooting was an attempt, probably by Capone, to kill Bugs Moran. Moran was supposed to be at this meeting, but left his hotel room late. The gunmen, seeing a similar-looking man walking into the building, had assumed Moran had arrived on time and went ahead with the plan. This event was covered intensely by the press, who gravitated strongly toward the mystery and brutality of the massacre. They plastered images of the gruesome remains all over local and national newspapers. The shooting was subsequently dubbed the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. The mystery surrounding the St. Valentine's Day Massacre remains unsolved. Some claim that Capone didn't even order the hit, that it was some unknown third party who had a grudge against Moran. But even if Capone had not ordered the hit, the effect on his reputation was immediate. The brutality of this murder turned public opinion sharply, permanently soiling his reputation. The shooting had apparently finally turned the world against him. Capone received a subpoena to appear before a grand jury to testify in relation to the killings. He sent a message back from Florida, saying he was feeling poorly and would not be able to appear before the court. This move did little to avert suspicion. When Capone returned to Chicago, he found that his number of enemies had multiplied. The massacre, on top of the killing of Frankie Yale, prompted the Unione Siciliana to put a $50,000 bounty on Capone's head. Two men who expressed their desire to collect it were John Scalisi and Alberto Anselmi, two Sicilian gangsters who had killed Dino Banyan for Capone five years earlier. They had no personal beef with Capone, but their greed for the reward eclipsed their loyalty. They would never collect this reward. On the morning of May 8, 1929, three bodies were discovered on a lonely road in Indiana. They were horribly disfigured, each with their heads caved in and filled with bullet holes. They were later identified as Scalisi, Anselmi, and Joseph Hoptoad Junta, the recently elected president of the Unione Siciliana. Rumors persist about how they died. The most famous is that Al Capone invited them to dinner before beating them all to death with a baseball bat. While blunt force trauma was most certainly involved, the idea of Capone doing it himself seems far-fetched, as he was more likely to have his lackeys do the dirty work. By this point, Capone had more enemies than friends in the criminal underworld. He couldn't look out a window without fear of someone trying to shoot him through it. To escape the heat, Capone took a page out of Johnny Torrio's book. On May 16, 1929, 
on his way back to Chicago from a business trip, he took a detour through Pennsylvania, where he paid a pair of policemen $10,000 each to arrest him and his bodyguard, Frankie Rio, for carrying concealed weapons. After a surprisingly stressful legal process and a brief stint in the inhospitable Holmesburg prison, Al Capone and Frankie Rio wound up sentenced for a year in Philadelphia's Eastern State Penitentiary. This choice of prison was deliberate. Capone remembered how Torrio had used his vast influence to turn a six-month jail stay into a comfortable and safe period of restful seclusion. So he had chosen for himself a prison where he could get a light sentence and comfortably wait out the storm. Al contacted his wife, May, and had his own mattress, bedding, and radio brought to his cell, transforming it from a prison to something more resembling a hotel. When Capone listened to radio shows, he made sure to turn the volume up so that the prisoners in adjacent cells could hear as well. Capone and Rio became popular among the other prisoners, all of whom wanted to win favor among the high rollers from Chicago. Capone's lieutenants and wife visited frequently, and if he ever needed to conduct business, he'd make phone calls out of the warden's office. Meanwhile, Johnny Torrio came out of retirement briefly to run the Chicago outfit in Capone's stead, having returned to America earlier that year to escape the rise of fascism in Italy. Everything fell together perfectly for Al to have a vacation in total safety from his enemies. But Capone should not have only been looking out for gangland retributions. The dramatic public attention and disgust incurred by the St. Valentine's Day Massacre also attracted the attention of the United States government, who encouraged various departments to step up their efforts to put Capone away for good. Prohibition agents had been attempting to disrupt Capone's business operations throughout the 1920s. But no matter how many distilleries they busted, they could not pin any of the prohibition violations on Capone himself. The lack of a paper trail between Capone and all of the businesses he owned made it impossible to build a case against him. Capone was simply too careful. Or at least Al was. There was one other Capone who was not quite so guarded, Al's older brother, Ralph. Agent Frank J. Wilson of the Bureau of Internal Revenue believed there was enough evidence to send Ralph Capone to jail for unpaid income taxes. Wilson claimed Ralph had not paid a cent of income tax in five years, and yet he continued to flaunt garish displays of wealth a diamond ring he wore, expensive automobiles he drove, and the frequent lavish parties he threw for friends. While Al was also guilty of many of the same sorts of conspicuous spending, he always paid home and property taxes, and he had no direct ties to the organization or even any bank accounts to leave a paper trail. Ralph, on the other hand, had several bank accounts under his name. Ralph was indicted in October of 1929 and charged with $5,000 of unpaid federal income tax, the equivalent of over $74,000 today. Ralph refused to pay, telling the IRS that he had no income 
and therefore did not owe any taxes. To make matters worse, he claimed to be broke and that he could not afford the 5000 even if he wanted to pay it. Ralph Capone was promptly audited, revealing more than $25,000 in one of his personal bank accounts. He was subsequently charged with attempting to defraud the U.S. government. This gave the FBI the reassurance they needed to authorize wiretaps on all the Capone family's phones. The man who put this request through was Elliot Ness, head of a unit of prohibition agents known as the Untouchables, named for their unwillingness to take bribes. Ness was almost as much of a publicity hound as Al Capone, acting in front of press cameras like a one-man crusade against Chicago corruption. But his work had little to do with the charges being brought against the elder Capone brother. Ralph Capone's trial was set for May 1930, two months after Al was scheduled to be released from prison. And yet, even as the government was closing in on the older Capone brother, Capone's greatest enemies were a group of men none of them ever met. They were known as the Secret Six. The Secret Six were a group of wealthy Chicago individuals who had grown fed up with Capone's hold over the city. Using their considerable financial resources, they had been backing anti-Capone individuals since the late 20s, which included throwing financial and legal support behind the Bureau's ongoing investigation. None of their identities were ever disclosed. In The Untouchables, his highly disputed and glorified account of the battle against Capone, Elliot Ness wrote, These six men were gambling with their lives, unarmed, to accomplish what 3,000 police and 300 prohibition agents had failed miserably to accomplish, the liquidation of a criminal combine which paid off in dollars to the greedy and death to the too greedy or incorruptible. It is unknown how much Capone was aware of these rumored opponents and their role in bringing charges against him. Whatever the case, by the time his vacation at the Eastern State Penitentiary ended, he felt more than ready to tackle any challenge Chicago had in store for him. On March 17, 1930, St. Patrick's Day, hundreds of Philadelphia reporters gathered outside Eastern State Penitentiary to see the famous Scarface Al released. To their surprise, the warden stepped out of the jailhouse alone. At Capone's request, the warden had smuggled Capone out earlier the night before. The warden smugly told the assembled reporters, We stuck one in your eye. The big guy is gone. Capone returned to Chicago to discover that the Chicago Crime Commission had named him public enemy number one. This designation did not phase him. But what did phase him was how much scrutiny his family had fallen under in his absence. Al Capone was now hounded everywhere he went. His Prairie Avenue house was so swarming with police that he couldn't visit his mother and his family. He couldn't leave town to visit his wife and son in Miami either. Though he was not in any immediate danger, Al Capone had become a prisoner of his own public image. The now 31-year-old Al holed up in the Hawthorne, now renamed the Western, and imbibed tremendous amounts of alcohol. 
He would frequently fly into a drunken rage, smashing furniture and yelling at his bodyguards and henchmen. The agents listening into the phone lines overheard a panicked henchman calling Ralph late one evening, begging him to intervene. He was the only one who could handle Al in this state. Finally, prompted by a visit from his brother and his wife, Al sobered up and launched a campaign to rehabilitate his image. When he emerged in late March 1930, he was his usual picture of brash confidence. Reporters and officials alike were finally able to ask him the question they'd been wanting to ask for years. Did you have anything to do with the St. Valentine's Day Massacre? Capone's response was always the same. He claimed, I get the blame for everything bad that happens here. If they could, they'd pin the Chicago fire on me. But while Capone was fighting to maintain his good image in Chicago, the people of Florida were still fighting to keep him out of their state. On March 19th, Governor Doyle E. Carlton sent a message to every sheriff in the Sunshine State telling them to arrest Al Capone on site should he cross the state line. This was, of course, impossible to enforce. Capone still had no criminal charges against him. Capone's lawyers in Miami objected to this decree, and a federal judge reluctantly agreed stating that the United States was a country of laws, not popular opinion. While Al was vindicated by this ruling, his brother was not faring so well in his own court case. In May of 1930, both Ralph Capone and Al's trusted lieutenant, Frank Nitti, were charged with income tax evasion and sentenced to time in Leavenworth Prison. This gave Agent Wilson the confidence he needed to start pursuing Al Capone directly. If they could pull together enough evidence, they could put him behind bars with his two associates. But the Bureau's biggest challenge was proving that Al made any money at all. Al still had nothing in his name. No bank accounts, no property, and no business holdings. He paid for everything in cash and the outfit's ledgers used coded language to refer to him. The bookkeepers had been trained to use duplicate and even triplicate fail-safe measures to keep the records indecipherable. The bureau was saved by Eddie O'Hare, a longtime Chicago outfit bookkeeper who helped them decipher the codes. But even then, there were no direct references to Capone in the ledgers. Once again, following Torrio's advice, Capone hired a well-reputed tax attorney named Lawrence P. Mattingly. Together, they considered multiple strategies. Mattingly suggested that if Al could admit to having some taxable income in the past, he could get away with just a fine. Mattingly, though he was an accomplished tax lawyer, was ultimately a very poor criminal lawyer. In the fall of 1930, while Al was in Florida strategizing about how to meet the outfit's payroll once Prohibition ended, Mattingly sent a letter to the Bureau claiming that Capone's income for 1925 and 1926 did not exceed $40,000, and that his income from 1928 and 1929 did not exceed $100,000. Mattingly prefaced this by claiming he had not sought additional information from his client. He secretly hoped this letter would be enough to incur a fine, but clear Capone of a criminal investigation. 
To put it bluntly, this was a terrible move. Mattingly's statements regarding Capone's income inadvertently confirmed that he had some connection to an illicit organization and that he had received a significant income from that organization. This letter would become the first piece of ammunition the Bureau would use to take Al Capone down. When we return, Al Capone goes to trial and his career as a criminal mastermind comes to an abrupt and horrifying end. Now, back to the story. When Al Capone showed up to a Chicago court on February 25, 1931, it was not because of his numerous criminal offenses or even the case the Internal Revenue Bureau was building. It was to answer for a contempt of court. Two years prior, he had claimed to be too sick to appear before a jury after the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, a claim that the court felt was too convenient to let slide. In March of 1929, as Capone put all his energy into proving that he was actually too sick to come to court, federal agents were putting pressure on him from all sides. Agent Wilson had found a ledger with Al's initials in it, alongside several other principal members of the outfit. This shred of evidence, like Ralph's conviction, was just enough to keep the investigation going. Capone's ledgers may have been difficult to navigate, but they were easy compared to finding a witness who would testify against him in court. Every person in Chicago either admired Capone too much to testify or feared him too much to risk speaking out. But continued efforts from law enforcement slowly turned the public perception of Capone around. Publicity hound Elliot Ness ramped up his campaign to get Capone, which mostly involved him smashing distilleries and taking photos with the impounded goods. It brought the Bureau no closer to convicting Capone, but it gave some gangland figures reason to believe that Capone was no longer all-powerful. This may have been Elliot Ness's greatest contribution to the investigation. Wilson, on the other hand, worked secretively, seeking out a man who he thought could be a key witness, Fred Reese, who had worked as a cashier at one of the outfit's many gambling joints. Wilson learned one thing about Reese that gave him hope. Reese was deathly afraid of bugs. When bureau agents captured Reese in St. Louis, they were instructed not to bring him to a traditional jail, but a holding cell designed specifically for him. The cell had been supplied with a moldy and bug-riddled mattress. After four days of living with cockroaches, bedbugs, and other insects, Reese begged to be released. He would tell them anything. The Bureau had secured their principal witness. Not a moment too soon, as Capone's other trial was reaching its conclusion. Al Capone was acquitted of contempt of court, only to find himself facing another charge on July 5th 1931. A grand jury had charged him with 24 counts of tax evasion. Five years after he had inherited Johnny Torrio's criminal empire, Al Capone was going to trial. Not for the hundreds of murders he ordered, but for neglecting to pay his taxes. 
The trial was a fiasco from the very start. Streets around the courthouse were choked with people wanting to see the infamous and now famously reclusive gangster. At the start, Al made an agreement with the prosecutor that he would plead guilty, pay the $10,000 fine, and serve two and a half years in Leavenworth alongside Ralph and Nitty. A young man of 32, he could afford to lose a couple years to get the government off his back. However, the judge ruled publicly that Al Capone had no right to determine his own punishment. Lacking a plan B, Capone's legal team requested a postponement. This was granted, and Capone went to trial once again on October 6, 1931. This time, Wilson's team was ready with their evidence. They were determined to put Capone behind bars for more than two years. Jury selection began in early October. Capone's henchmen were already at work in the jury pool, bribing and threatening every potential juror into taking Capone's side. This was the strategy that had protected Al for so long, making sure fear of his reputation was stronger than the truth. However, former Capone bookkeeper Eddie O'Hare learned of this jury fix. He told Wilson, who told the judge, at the very last minute, the judge swapped juries with a case going on in an adjacent courtroom. To ensure no tampering would occur, the jury in Capone's trial would be sequestered in a nearby hotel under armed guard. Capone was forced to rely on his legal team alone, and they were woefully inadequate for the task. Over the following month, the prosecution attacked Capone's claim that he had no income tax with the examples Wilson had provided, the deciphered ledger, testimony about the Capone family's spending, and even Lawrence Mattingly's poorly thought-out letter from the previous year. Working-class people were feeling the devastating effects of the Great Depression, so public sympathy for rich businessmen had taken a sharp decline across America. The opulent spending of the 20s had given way to resentment from those who could barely afford to feed their families. Though Capone's businesses had started one of the first soup kitchens in Chicago, the revelation that May spent $1,000 a week on groceries earned them little sympathy. On October 24, 1931, Al Capone was convicted and sentenced to 11 years in prison. As he left the courtroom to await sentencing, he seemed resigned to his fate. The assembled reporters asked him how he felt about the sentence, and he said, Publicity. That's what got me. As Al's lawyers attempted to fast-track their appeals process, Al was held in Cook County Jail. In the final months of 1931, he received visits from business associates as well as family members, where he'd reassure them that even if he served his full sentence, he would still get out in his early 40s. He had been to prison before, after all. How bad could this be? But behind bars, Al finally let his affable public persona drop. Toward the press, he adopted a dismissive attitude, finally letting his resentment of their constant hounding show. He was humbled, but did not see himself as truly defeated. He was bound for Leavenworth, 
where Frank Nitti and his brother Ralph lived relatively comfortably thanks to strategic bribery. All Al needed to do was be on his best behavior, and he would be able to survive until his appeal went through. On the morning of May 3, 1932, Al heard a disturbing announcement over the radio. He was not going to Leavenworth as he had expected. Instead, he would be going to the federal penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia. The warden in Atlanta was nowhere near as friendly to Capone as the one at Eastern Penn had been. Capone was granted no special privileges and lived the next two years of his life mending shoes and ranting at his cellmate about how he was once Chicago's greatest benefactor. Within the first three weeks of arriving at Atlanta, Capone was quarantined for medical reasons and diagnosed with neurosyphilis. The sexually transmitted disease he had contracted in his late teens or early 20s had made its way to his brain. We don't know for sure if it had started affecting his mental faculties before this, though it would certainly explain the number of judgment errors he made on the road to prison. At the time, there was no treatment for this condition. Al Capone, who had once looked ahead to a full life after prison, faced the deadly consequences of his youth. His mind was going, and often he would appear confused and walk with a lopsided gait. The end was arriving far more slowly and painfully than it would if any of his rivals had put a bullet in his head back in 1929. But Atlanta was not a terribly painful experience for Capone. He did not enjoy the luxuries he had experienced in Philadelphia, but most of his fellow prisoners understood that Al Capone should not be harmed. Even diminished and in prison, Capone's reputation was a force to be reckoned with. His time in Atlanta came to an abrupt end in early 1934. Al wrote his wife May calmly, expressing that his greatest worry once he changed prisons was that she would have difficulty visiting him. On August 18th, Capone and 52 other prisoners were loaded onto a train and shipped out west. Their destination? The newly acquired federal penitentiary of Alcatraz, a rocky island in the San Francisco Bay. Al Capone acquired one final nickname during his time at The Rock, Prisoner 85. If Atlanta was a shock to Capone, Alcatraz was even worse. He was trapped on an island with the worst criminals in America. Most of his fellow inmates had sentences ranging from 25 years to life, so by comparison, Al's remaining nine years seemed relatively slight. The fearsome reputation that had protected Al in Atlanta had completely dissipated by the time he reached Alcatraz. The inmates there saw his desire to be on good behavior as a sign that Capone had lost his spine. He would become a daily target for verbal and physical abuse. According to some, due to his reputation and relatively short sentence, Al Capone was the most hated man on Alcatraz. He kept his head down, transferring among various work details, including laundry duty, the shoe shop, and the library. The library was his favorite, as he enjoyed peaceful reading away from his violent fellows. Ralph Capone, who had been released from Leavenworth in 1933, 
received a number of letters describing in great detail how other prisoners plotted to kill his brother. But the only verified attempt on his life wouldn't come until June 23, 1936. Al Capone was in a sorry state by this point. He had lost 50 pounds, most of his hair, and there were a number of open sores on his face due to his advancing syphilis. While working his shift at the laundry room, prisoner 224, a man named James Lucas, jumped Capone, stabbing him viciously with a pair of scissors. Al was taken to the prison's hospital in a state of shock, with superficial stab wounds all over his hands and abdomen. During the attack, a piece of the scissors had been broken off and embedded in his left thumb. The removal of this piece necessitated Capone's stay in the hospital for three days. When he returned from the medical ward, he was greeted only by jeers and taunts, reinforcing just how unsympathetic his fellow prisoners were to his pain. Loneliness had hit Capone harder than any of his punishments in Alcatraz. His letters home were filled with longing and melancholy. He repented his previous affairs to May and expressed a strong desire to be with his family again. On Saturday, February 5, 1938, Capone's condition took a sharp turn for the worse. When he wasn't up at bed check, the guard found him in his cell dressed in the blue suit he was supposed to wear on Sundays and holidays. He ordered Prisoner 85 to change and go to the mess hall. Capone complied, but he seemed unaware of his surroundings or what day it was. Dementia, a common symptom of neurosyphilis, had finally set in. They attempted to cure his tertiary syphilis with bismuth and triparsamide, but those treatments were useless. Capone would be under close observation for the rest of his time at Alcatraz. He would oscillate between periods of lucidity, where he would be able to clearly write letters to May, and periods of delusion, where he would talk about his grand plans to end the Depression by giving jobs to everyone who needed one. On November 16, 1939, Capone was finally released from Alcatraz, where he was spirited directly to a hospital in Baltimore for further treatment. His cognitive functions had only gotten worse. In 1940, Capone was finally stable enough to return home. According to some reports, he had the mental capacity of a 14-year-old at this point. The great brain that had puzzled law enforcement throughout the 20s was now a shadow of its former self. May took Al back to Palm Island in March of 1940, where they lived on a weekly $600 retirement fund from the outfit. For much of Al's remaining life, May and Ralph fought over custody of him. Ralph thought Al needed to return to Chicago, which Al, in his more lucid moments, agreed with. May, on the other hand, knew that too much noise and too many unfamiliar faces tended to cause Al to fly into tantrums. In the end, it was May who won out. On January 21, 1947, Al spasmed and fell into a coma. Four days later, he was dead. He had just turned 46. He was followed by his mentor, Torrio, 12 years later. For a man who lived so briefly, Capone's legacy is immense. To this day, he is a household name, 
a sort of shorthand for gangster in common parlance. The empire that he founded with Johnny Torrio lasted long after both of their deaths. It is rumored to still be active, though the public attention that Capone courted for much of his career was long since abandoned by his successors. While many factors contributed to Capone's fall, it seems the greatest of them all was his ego. He loved his own notoriety so much that in the end, he could not escape it. In the years following his arrest, his legend has been inflated and dramatized to an almost absurd degree. But it's worth remembering that the story itself is still quite incredible. That of a first-generation American who seized the public's imagination by the throat and refused to let go. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Carrie Murphy. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Kingpins was written by Robert Teamstra and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett. <laughs>